0: There's a narrative that people don't care about privacy. There are practical
1: steps that you can take to protect yourself. As a librarian, I want information to be free. I want everybody to be able to access any information they need at any time.
2: We want to make sure that folks can navigate this new wild area as best they can and as safely as they can.
3: People are hungry to be given some advice. I find librarians
4: tend to get it pretty quick. This is Library Bytegeist collection of audio stories from the Libraries, Archives, and Museums of New York City. I'm Molly Schwartz, and this podcast is brought to you by the Metropolitan New York Library Council, where the Libraries and Archives of New York come together to learn, share ideas, and collaborate. For this month's Library Bytegeist episode, we're going to tackle the complicated topics of privacy and digital security. We'll be talking to librarians about what they are doing on the ground in their libraries to keep people's online activities private and secure, both inside the library building and beyond. All the technology that we rely on today that connects to networks, like computers and cell phones, have made the technical sides of maintaining privacy more complicated. But long before the days of email and text messages, the lines that we draw in our society between public and private communications and who has the right to access our personal information have been hard fought. In 1972, seven religious anti-war activists, known as the Harrisburg Seven, were being faced with conspiracy charges for allegedly plotting to blow up steam tunnels under Washington, D.C. and kidnap Henry Kissinger, then-President Nixon's national security advisor. Six of the Harrisburg Seven were Roman Catholic nuns or priests, including their ringleader, Father Philip Berrigan. Father Berrigan was serving time in the Lewisburg Federal Penitentiary for burning his Vietnam War draft card.
2: And Berrigan was in jail in Pennsylvania at the Lewisburg State Penitentiary. One of his fellow prisoners was on a work release program to a library down the road at Bucknell University, and this fellow inmate was supposedly passing notes for Berrigan at the Bucknell University Library.
4: This is Bill Martin, the Director of Privacy and Compliance at the New York Public Library, NYPL.
2: What was interesting in the case, and why it was a critical case for libraries, is that that librarian was called as a key prosecution witness. A woman named Joya Horn,
4: who got her library degree in 1942 at the Pratt Institute Library School here in New York City.
2: And she refused to testify on the grounds that the court did not have a right to ask what her patrons were doing. She said this is against the fundamental rights of people's right to use a library.
4: As a result of her refusal to testify, Joya Horn was put in handcuffs and sent to jail.
2: That's the first known case of a librarian in this country going to jail to protect patrons' rights. What I find remarkable about the case is that Joya Horn went to jail not because of some privacy policy that she was following or even a state statute. She was doing it based on a, on a fundamental principle, kind of in the DNA, I think, of librarians. They understand this and they, they live it. Regardless of what we have written on paper, the people we have working in the, on the front lines are the ones who are really going to protect the patrons and make sure that this is a living goal for us.
4: It was a landmark moment in the role that libraries would play in the protection of patron privacy. In the time since Joya Horne's arrest, our rights to confidentiality in the library have been codified in the law.
2: Every state in the country has a statute or some sort of law that pertains to library data and its protection under state laws. So in New York, there's something called CPLR 4509. It's an evidentiary law that says that library data cannot be shared for any purpose other than library operations, which means that we can't sell it, we can't just send it on to a third party without the patron's consent. So we're unique in that way in that we are actually obligated by law to protect that data. And to go back to the New York State law that was passed back in 1981, before the internet as we know it existed. And the reason the state legislature said, and it's what's called the bill jacket, the reason behind the passage of the law, was that they regarded libraries, they said, as sanctuaries where people can have intellectual inquiry without fear of anyone knowing what they've looked at. And I think that has stood and will always stand as a key component of what libraries are, a place for free
4: intellectual inquiry. That means that as an extension of your right to freedom of expression, The books you check out, the questions you ask reference librarians, the databases you search, the programs you participate in, all of these things are legally required to be kept confidential, not to be shared with anybody else. There's a reason why it's considered so important that what you do in the library can be kept confidential that it's made its way into the laws of the United States. Libraries have long been recognized as a core institution that enables our constitutional rights to freedom of expression. Sure, we all have these rights in theory. I mean, it's written in the Constitution. But by providing free open access to the books and computers that actually let us formulate our opinions and then share them with others if we want to, libraries put these rights into practice for everyone.
0: By providing privacy and anonymity protections, which is something that librarians have long been interested in, all 50 states have library privacy laws on the books, we promote and protect intellectual freedom.
4: That was Chuck McAndrew, the IT librarian at Lebanon Public Libraries in New Hampshire. Chuck takes online privacy pretty seriously. He's installed a Tor exit relay in his library and has encrypted the hard drives on all of his library staff's computers.
0: Without privacy, there is no such thing as intellectual freedom because surveillance actually alters the way that you behave. We will self-police our actions if we know that we are being observed in order to conform to social norms and what we know is expected of us. So without the privacy to go beyond that, then we can't explore new ideas and we can't try out new ways of doing things.
4: The important role that libraries play in ensuring our First Amendment rights to freedom of expression have been recognized by court justices, U.S. presidents, and legislators. Judge Morton Greenberg of the Third Circuit Court delivered an opinion for the Kramer v. Morristown case, in which he stated that the First Amendment encompasses the positive right of public access to information and ideas, including the right to some level of access to a public library, the quintessential locus of the receipt of information. But our freedom of expression is fundamentally threatened if privacy rights are not also enforced. If we think that the things we say, read, or write will be recorded or made public, that changes what we feel free to say, read, and write. Privacy experts call this the chilling effect of surveillance. If we think we are being watched, we self-censor what we are willing to say, which is equally as powerful as actual censorship. Libraries are supposed to be places where we have access to the information we need to become informed citizens and where we also have the freedom to consider and develop alternative viewpoints. This is the ideal for developing an effective, participative democracy. But what happens if the opposite were true? If the access and freedom that we assume that we have in libraries is taken advantage of by parties who want insights into our inner thoughts and activities, especially if these inner thoughts and activities might be controversial or go against the mainstream. The widespread shift to personal, handheld, data-leaching technologies have only made it more difficult to set up the technical and legal safeguards that we need to stop the library from becoming some kind of dystopian panopticon. Things have only gotten more complex. This is NYPL's Bill Martin again.
2: As I started talking to experts in the field, I realized early on that everyone has a digital footprint. Everyone has some presence that they can never erase. For instance, the minute you come into the library... You're being videotaped. Your presence is known that way. When you borrow books, of course, one of the things we do is delete that information from our systems as soon as you return the book. But there are maybe other systems, other databases that you use that still have your fingerprints, so to speak, or your footprint.
4: For Bill, the first step when he joined NYPL one year ago was to update the library's privacy policy.
2: And that's a pretty big thing when you think about New York Public Library has 23 million items that are borrowed in a year. We collect as little data as we can. When we share information with third parties, we know where that information is going. We allow people the opportunity to opt in and opt out of processes, such as receiving emails or being on mailing lists of various sorts. One of our board members said at this meeting back in 2015, how come we can't just go into the library and be anonymous, just like the old days? And I sort of took that as the starting point. Can we have complete anonymity in our libraries today? On the morning of November 30th, 2016, we hit a button and 1,044,000 people received an email saying that we were rolling out this new policy. It was available on the website. And on the website, there was a big banner that said, our new policy has been published and here it is and here are some of the provisions. I think the challenge for us is helping people to better use the resources that we have, much of which are digital. Some are still analog, of course, but in this new digital world, Things are changing at such a lightning-fast pace that, first of all, it's impossible to tell people, well, nothing is going to go outside the realm of what you want to keep secret.
4: In many places, libraries are the only places that offer free public access to the internet and computers. That means that librarians often end up at the front lines when it comes to teaching computer literacy. It's a role that's vitally important, but doesn't always come easily to librarians who weren't necessarily trained as technologists. Most of us are not technologists. This is Melissa Marone the supervising librarian of the InfoCommons at Brooklyn Public Library. In her role, she has witnessed firsthand the challenges that come from trying to move more privacy awareness and training into BPL's library activities.
3: I think of library staff as being technology translators. I think that it's part of our responsibility in that we offer internet access and you know some, some basic procedural instruction about how to use computers and the internet. So we are responsible too for educating people about their rights as well as their responsibilities and the consequences that could happen to themselves and their personal information. If they are using a less trustworthy site, if they could maybe have better practices in terms of the tools they use, you know, the hardware they use. I do think people are concerned about their privacy, despite the fact that some people do have bad habits, like literally not logging out of their email on a public computer and just walking out of the room. This is what inspired Melissa
4: to develop a digital privacy training for all of the librarians and technology trainers at Brooklyn Public Library.
3: Six years ago, I was put in touch with a researcher, Sita Penyak-Gadaran, and Sita was doing a study of a few different venues, and she wanted a public library, and so BPL ended up able to serve as that venue. Her project was about attitudes towards internet use and surveillance, but what she found out through her research of library users was that library staff ourselves also have gaps in knowledge about digital privacy and and surveillance and internet communications in general, which is understandable because it's it's a complex and fast-changing field. And so with this particular focus on surveillance and privacy, we started working together with some other partners on this grant-funded project that would train library staff. So that's the digital privacy training project that I've been working on here.
4: But even though a lot of librarians still have a lot to learn about digital security, Melissa thinks that librarians can help
3: technologists develop better tools. We are places where people use the computer, even if they're not using a library computer. It's very common for people to bring their own devices, laptops, other types of computers into the library to use our Wi-Fi and do their work. We're part of the ecosystem of technology in people's lives. So I think our advantage and our role is that we're trusted community members and that we can be an intermediary both between the technology as we understand it, to educate library users about it, but also to be in touch with technologists in some way, to let them know how ordinary people use computers that maybe the average technologist has just a lot of people in their lives who are very savvy. I think library staff can remind people that not everybody does have an email account, that a lot of people are flummoxed by understanding basic networks and how the internet works. Alison Macrina also
4: thinks that much progress can be made by training library staff on how to properly use private and secure technologies.
5: So I started by teaching privacy classes in the library where I was working, kind of going along with like our typical computer literacy offerings, incorporating some privacy stuff in intro to the Internet courses and that sort of thing.
4: There was so much interest in Allison's privacy trainings at the library that she decided more librarians needed to be doing this. So she partnered with the ACLU and got funding from IMLS and took her privacy trainings on the road, traveling around and teaching other librarians how to lead privacy trainings, like she was doing. This is how Allison founded and became the director of the Library Freedom Project in 2013.
5: And we've been going across libraries in the U.S. and elsewhere ever since.
4: People come to the library profession from many different backgrounds and skill sets. Chuck McAndrew certainly didn't follow the most traditional path.
0: Straight out of high school, I joined the Marine Corps, and then I trained as an auto mechanic, and then I helped some friends of mine start a business making swords.
4: Yeah, you heard that right, swords.
0: And then when the economy crashed, no one wanted to buy our swords, so I went back to school intending to be a librarian. So me ending up in as an IT librarian was just kind of coincidental.
4: Tor is a free software. It allows for anonymous communication, and it does this by routing data that's sent across the network through three layers of encryption. This means that if anyone were to intercept communications that you're sending using Tor, they would not be able to tell from any single point of intrusion where the data came from and where it's going because it's bouncing through three different relays. But the Tor network only works thanks to a global network of volunteers who run the relays that the data is routed through. Chuck and Allison decided that his library would be a good candidate for running one of these tour relays.
0: The idea came from Allison Macrina of the Library Freedom Project. The intention behind this project was always to have my library host an exit relay for a couple reasons. One is that libraries are already in the business of providing public access to internet, so we're used to having people's traffic originate from libraries, and it's well known that we're public providers. We have protections under the safe harbor provision of the DMCA, so if someone, say, pirates a movie on our internet connection, we're not liable. And this is a space that libraries have worked in for a long time, so having us be an exit node makes sense from that point of view. We also tend to have a lot of bandwidth that doesn't get used all the time. The Tor network is a global network. It goes 24 hours a day. So while my network may not be getting used much while my library is closed, aside from someone sitting in the parking lot using my Wi-Fi occasionally, by donating bandwidth to the Tor project, I'm actually making sure that my bandwidth is used constantly 24 hours a day. The way I see it is we're already paying for that. It should get used.
4: It helped that Chuck already had all the library's computers running off of Linux operating systems. But it was the Library Freedom Project that introduced him to a community of librarians who were also into digital security.
0: Originally, we had just done this as a library program and didn't think anything of it.
4: But setting up the tour relay at Lebanon Public Library wasn't totally smooth sailing.
0: Our local police department actually ended up finding out about it because someone in the Boston office of the Department of Homeland Security had read an article in Ars Technica about what our library was doing. Forwarded that article to another police department, and then they forwarded it to our local police department who had some concerns about it. So they expressed those concerns to our acting city manager at the time who then asked us to put the relay on hold until our trustees could reevaluate the decision based on the information that the police department provided. And the information the police department provided was actually nothing that we weren't already aware of, which is that this technology has the potential to allow bad people to do bad things, which is the same thing that can be said about any technology, including cars, including hammers, including computers. This was not actually news to us, but out of respect for our city manager and concerns expressed, our library director and the president of our board of trustees did agree to put the relay on hold.
4: If Lebanon Public Library wanted to keep running the tour relay, They were going to have to prove to the police department, the city manager, and the library's board of trustees that the tour relay would benefit their community. As it turned out, that support wasn't hard to find.
0: During the intervening weeks before the trustees meeting, we had... Hundreds of emails come in from all over the world, but a lot from our own community. We had phone calls. We had people reaching out. We had more than 50 people actually show up to our trustees meeting, which was crazy. And out of all those phone calls and all those emails and all those people who we talked to in person, there was one email that was opposed to the project. Everyone else was in favor of it. So it was completely overwhelming support. People very clearly stated this is an area that they want libraries to be involved in. They want their library to be involved in. And they thought this was a good thing. Like I said, we had about 50 people show up to the trustees meeting. Not a single person spoke against the project. We had about 15 people stand up and make comments in favor of it. They were from all across the political spectrum.
4: Some of the people who spoke up in favor of the tour Relay had pretty strong cases, which get to the core of why it's so important for people to be able to keep their communications private.
0: of our staff members, she had been in Colombia during their Civil War, and she said if this would have been available to some of her friends, they probably would have been alive today. And, you know, we heard some incredible stories from people. We heard one immigrant who was from a country where homosexuality was still illegal and any materials related to it were illegal as well. He happened to be gay, and he said that if it was not for TOR, he would not have been able to access online support communities. And he had been seriously contemplating killing himself before he was able to do that so in his opinion having access to Tor saved his life we also had a gentleman who was a russian national and he said when he was in russia he was not able to access any uncensored media not even read it he couldn't even go to reddit so the only way he was able to get news other than what is state approved was to use tor so that's a pretty classic intellectual freedom argument right there we also had a detective from tacoma washington call and he worked in their internet crimes and he said they His department actually teaches the use of TOR for domestic abuse victims, because increasingly they're seeing tech-savvy abusers who will use a victim's IP address to track down where they're staying. So to protect these victims, they're actually teaching them how to use this anonymity software online.
4: Given the overwhelming support for the relay at the Board of Trustees meeting, Chuck didn't waste any time getting it back up and running.
0: I actually had my laptop with me at that meeting, and as soon as they said that, I from the relay back on. <laughs> so I wasn't even waiting for the meeting to end.
4: Chuck sees the successful installation of the relay as a way that Lebanon Public Library can play a role that extends far beyond the walls of their library buildings in New Hampshire.
0: By helping people to have that mental space, that mental freedom to explore new ideas and come up with better ways of doing things, my library is benefiting a global community for privacy, anonymity, intellectual freedom. You know, we have a fairly small service area compared to some libraries. We've got about 14,000 people in my city, but we are having a global impact with what we're doing. And I think that's pretty cool.
4: You can find materials from the surveillance self-defense classes that Chuck runs online at leblibrary.org. Even though librarians like Melissa Marone, Alison Macrina, and Chuck McAndrew have been working to teach librarians how to become privacy technology translators for their patrons, it's an uphill battle. You see, the internet wasn't designed to be secure. When digital networking technologies first sparked to life as ARPANET in 1969, it was fundamentally different from the analog communication technologies that had come before it. For example, telephone networks have an intelligent core and dumb edges. The network of switches that connect all the phone traffic are complex and centralized, so it's an intelligent core, but the telephone handsets that sit in people's homes are simple to use and do only one thing. They only make phone calls, which makes it a dumb edge. By contrast, the internet has a dumb core and intelligent edges. All that the network does is transfer data, so its core is dumb. It just transfers packets of data. But the individual computers at the edges of the network They are intelligent and complex, and they do a lot more than one thing, so their edge is intelligent. That's the strength of the internet. Anyone can connect and use it for almost anything. That also makes it inherently insecure. That's where the privacy trainings come in. Sometimes privacy trainings are formal events led by librarians or other privacy experts, but they can also happen as informal peer-led events known as crypto parties.
1: A crypto party is an event that can be held by anyone, anywhere, where people who are experts in digital security and privacy come and teach you how to secure your digital life. So it can be via your cell phone or laptop, your email account, any communications that you're having on Internet forums. They'll teach you how to maintain these accounts, including how to have secure communications on any public Internet forum that they're using.
4: This is Phoebe Stein, the digital services librarian at the School of Visual Arts Library here in New York City.
1: We're holding a crypto party on March 16th from 7 to 9 p.m. This is our first foray into digital security in that sense. We have held other events that you might typically think of a library holding, like readings and sometimes small concerts, more along that vein. Everybody who has heard about it has been very excited. And our director, she goes to monthly undergraduate and graduate chairs meetings with all the heads of the departments. And she mentioned it at one of these meetings. And one of the chairs, I think his reaction when he heard that we were having a crypto party was, yes.
4: So I think it's going to be a very positive reception. Crypto parties are held all over the world for the purpose of teaching everyone how to keep their online communications private and secure. Since network technologies are inherently leaky and insecure, the only way to make sure that your messages are only going to your intended recipients is by encrypting them. At crypto parties, you learn how to do things like encrypt your email with PGP, encrypt your text messages and phone calls with tools like Signal. Signal, by the way, is the awesomest thing ever, download it and get it now, it's so easy. You learn how to use strong passwords for your online accounts, how to encrypt your online chats with tools that help you go off the record, OTR, and to use anonymous search engines like the Tor browser. Crypto parties can be organized by anyone, I've even organized a couple, and they can happen anywhere, in classrooms or bars, but many of them are also hosted in libraries. We've hosted a few crypto parties. Melissa sees crypto parties as a great way to bring together privacy tech experts and library regulars at an event that helps spread the word about good privacy practices.
3: What I've tried to do at BPL is be in touch with technologists who are active in Crypto Party. There's a newer organization known as Crypto Squad. So getting those people into the library to do public programs. And sometimes those have been structured programs. Sometimes they've been more drop-in help desk kinds of things. So I think that's one thing that library staff who may not feel that they themselves can teach a digital privacy class can do is to make connections with people in the community who are able to offer those classes.
4: We heard earlier in the episode from Bill Martin about how librarians have legal and ideological commitments to protecting the privacy of their patrons as an extension of our rights to freedom of expression. But even though this has always been a core value for librarians, the movement of library services to digital technologies have made things infinitely more complicated since Joy Horn's day. Something that I heard come up over and over again in my conversations with librarians was the third-party problem.
2: Frankly, one of the challenges for libraries is libraries don't have the money to create their own systems for research databases and other tools for the public, even the what's known as the ILS, the integrated library system that we use to track book borrowing. That's a third-party product. What we're responsible for is the library is to try to make sure that those third-party vendors are using and storing and allowing access to that information properly. So for instance, if you go to NYPL's website and you have a library card, you can use over 800 different databases and websites by logging in. And every one of those sites are secure to a certain extent, but each one is different in its own way. An example would be ancestry.com. With an NYPL card, you can have free access to that site. However, if you start sharing your family's family tree and genealogy information, you are going into a space that is outside of our control. So, one of the things we do at the library is we offer classes, we, they're called Tech Connect, where we help people understand some of the basics about security, information security, using HTTPS sites, and et cetera. I kind of liken it to somebody who's used to using a handsaw, and you suddenly hand them an electric saw, and all of a Sudden, they have this very powerful tool that can either make their work go a lot faster, or it can hurt them very badly. So, I think our job is to help people understand how to use that that tool so that they are safe and secure in, the, in their use of these resources that are wonderful,
5: but at the same time, they can be dangerous.
4: Allison Macrina is also concerned about the vulnerabilities created by using third-party vendors.
5: Let's look at our whole landscape of services and what we offer, how many of those are run by third parties, how many of those are a black box to us.
4: Allison warns that this lack of librarian awareness and vigilance could have serious consequences.
5: I think there was a real trend in libraries for years of promoting access at all costs, but we didn't really think about the privacy considerations, and now in some ways it can kind of feel like the toothpaste is already out of the tube. I worry about a lot of our own internal practices, how we're keeping patron records. Are we deleting the logs of their catalog search queries? Are we using HTTPS on our catalogs? Are we deleting any activity that shows you know, what they do on our public computers? And most of us aren't. And, and what we have to realize is that the landscape that we're in now, all of that information is subpoenaable. You know, we're putting people in harm's way just by keeping it.
4: The values are there, but sometimes the know-how is not, and it seems like the issues of digital security are not going away anytime soon. If anything, the threats are getting worse. Take a look at the news these days, and you'll likely see headlines about Yahoo accounts getting hacked, WikiLeaks leaking documents about CIA surveillance methods, or people's cell phones getting searched and seized when they go through customs. But the situation is far from hopeless. There are many simple and immediate steps that librarians can take that will go a long way to providing better security on their library's media. Chuck has a few suggestions.
0: We make the Tor browser available on our public computers, which is actually something that I think every library should do because it's free. It costs you nothing. It works on every major operating system. You just have to go to torproject.org and download it. And it gives your patrons the option of having online anonymity with basically no work on your part. So that's just an incredibly obvious step. For me, and I think that library should do it. We also install privacy-enhancing plugins on our patron computers, so we use Privacy Badger and HTTPS Everywhere from the EFF, and then we use uBlock Origin as an ad blocker. Our public Wi-Fi, we offer two. We offer an open Wi-Fi that you don't need a password to uh, access, and we also offer an encrypted one. But we don't want to limit access, and having a password on your Wi-Fi can actually limit access. So we put the password in the name of the network. They still have that encrypted connection between the access point and their computer, but we aren't limiting access.
4: There are also loads of resources out there. The American Library Association's Privacy Toolkit is a good place to start, but I put some more links in the description of this episode. And for those of you who want more privacy podcasts, more, more, more. I'll link some other podcasts below. And I would also suggest checking out the Privacy Paradox series from WNYC's Note to Self and Mozilla. A very special thanks to all the librarians who participated in this episode. Bill Martin, Melissa Marone, Allison McCrina, Phoebe Stein, and Chuck McAndrew. You all are awesome. And a big thanks to the Freedom of the Press Foundation's Olivia Martin, who provided moral support during my first time using the recording studio at Brick Media Arts. And thanks to Brick for letting us use the recording studio. Okay, that's all for now. Thanks for tuning in, and look out for next month's Library Bytegeist on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. You all know the drill.